Good morning. It is good to be gathered in God's house this morning. Are you excited to be here? Uh, sometimes to start the day at school, I have my students turn to their neighbor and say one thing they're thankful for. So why don't we try that this morning? Turn to somebody behind you or in front of you and say one thing you're thankful for this morning. Go for it. All right. You see, when we take the time to think about something we're thankful for, it helps us feel blessed and realigns our focus on the blessings that we have and the giver of those blessings. Sunday school lesson this morning on the light of the world and that song, very fitting, Damien. And that, that last verse, heaven, we're not going to need any light. Jesus is going to be the light. Let's look forward to that, to that day when we can spend it with him. This morning for the message, I would like to first take a step back in time to A.D. 400. A couple hundred years after Jesus would have been here on earth, the time of the Romans. And I'd like to look at the life of Telemachus. Telemachus was a young man who grew up a lot of energy, unruly, wanted to do his own thing in life. Late teens, he uh, was converted. Somebody witnessed to him, and he gave his life to Christ. After that, he wanted to devote his life to service to God. So he became a monk in a remote monastery and took up mission work. Involved in mission work, wonderful setting. Through that, God was speaking to him, and he felt called to go back to Rome, his hometown, and witness to his friends and people he knew back there. So, he left the monastery and headed back to Rome. On arriving there, within a couple days of his arrival, he noticed that one day there was throngs of people headed to the Colosseum, or stadium. So... Like any other person, he was interested in what was going on. So he followed the throngs. When he got there, in the arena, in the center of this big stadium where thousands of people were gathered, were gladiators. And they were gathering to celebrate with war games. War games where they fought one another. The reason for their celebration, they had just defeated another territory. And they were proud of their empire. So they were going to celebrate by fighting each other. As they gathered, the these thousands of people gathered, they saluted this empire, and the fighting commenced. The carnage began, and the gladiators fought one another. The crowd went wild with excitement and cheering. He was appalled as he saw this unfolding. So... He was one person out of several thousand. From his position there in the stadium, he started shouting, In the name of Jesus, stop! In the name of Jesus, stop! But of course, what is one voice among thousands? As the fighting continued, he developed some courage and ran down the steps and into the arena where the fighting was taking place. Of course, his arrival in the arena caused the gladiators to stop for a moment. And look at what was going on. The fighting was interrupted. 
The crowd now went wild again. Remove this interruption. Meanwhile, Telemachus is in the, sh in the middle shouting, In the name of Jesus, stop! In the name of Jesus, stop! He found himself between two gladiators who were in the middle of a battle. The one gladiator raised his sword and placed it into the heart of Telemachus. He fell to the arena and died. It grew intensely quiet in the stadium, and one by one, the thousands of people left, including the emperor, including the gladiators. The only thing that was left on the floor of the arena that day was the life, was the body of Telemachus. Within an hour, the emperor wrote an edict saying that there's supposed to be no more war games in the Colosseum or in the stadium. Telemachus that day got in the way of evil. What drove him to do that? What drove him to almost commit suicide? It looks like from some people's perspective. What was his drive? What was his goal for doing that? To get in the way of evil. That's my title of the message this morning. Get in the way of evil. And to do that, I would like to look at the life of Nehemiah this morning. So you can turn to the book of Nehemiah. I'm not going to be referring to a specific set of verses. But as we look at the life of Nehemiah, we see here a man who was willing to get in the way of evil. And I hope that we can be encouraged and that we can see areas in our life to get in the way of evil. So the life of Nehemiah, if you're there, I'm going to give a quick overview of Nehemiah's life, starting in chapter 1. If I asked you about Nehemiah, what would you say? Do you know anything about him? When did he live? Where did he live? What did he do? So to give you a little context, we have Babylon capturing Israel because of the roller coaster journey that they were on and going away from God. He allowed them to be captured. They were taken to Babylon. After exile in Babylon, the Persian Empire, which was a little east, overtook the Babylon Empire. And now the Israelites were under, the Jews, were under control of the Persians. Now the Persian king uh, had a little consideration for the group of the Jews and he gave them permission to head back to Jerusalem and rebuild their city to live in their hometown. A group of Jews did head back to rebuild. Zerubbabel was one of them that uh, led in that rebuilding. Some Jews stayed in Shushan, the capital of the Persian Empire, because life was good there. Why head back? One of those was, Artaxer uh, was uh, Nehemiah, a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. Now, when you hear the word cupbearer, what does a cupbearer do? He was pretty much the king's right-hand man, made sure that everything the king drank and ate was good for him. So this was a coveted position among the servants to the king, a cupbearer to the king. This was Nehemiah's position. All right, so that's a little context. Going into the story of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 1, if you're skimming through, we see here Nehemiah's brethren, in verse 2, coming to him. And what do they say? They said, Nehemiah, the city of Jerusalem, it's in ruins. Yeah, some people went back to rebuild the temple, 
But the city is still in ruins. The wall has not been built. They are not protected. There's opposition from people around. What does he do in verse 4? And it came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. It struck Nehemiah to the very core. He was burdened by this news that his town, his hometown of Jerusalem, was still in ruins. He saw a need to rebuild. The, at the last half of chapter 1 recounts him going before the Lord and saying, God, what is wrong? My hometown, it needs to be rebuilt. I beseech you, Lord. He goes to God and cries out. He sees the need to rebuild. Chapter 2. So, Nehemiah was a... From the, from, the, from the book here, it shows that Nehemiah was a joyful guy. He was happy before the king. The king loved to have him around. I don't know if he was cracking jokes or what made the king like to have him around, but he was pleasant to be around. But in chapter 2, he says, uh, verse 2, Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of the heart. Then was I sore afraid. The king saw that Nehemiah was burdened by something else. He said, Nehemiah, what's going on? Nehemiah was a little scared. Oh boy, should I tell the king everything that my heart is heavy about? He said, okay, king, my hometown, it's in ruins. You gave permission to my, to my brethren to go back and rebuild, but they rebuilt the temple, but they didn't rebuild my city. The king said, okay. Nehemiah said, can I go back? Can I go back and rebuild? The king gave him permission. Uh, if you read down through, the king's like, um, how long are you going to be gone? I want, you, I want you back. You're a good servant. So Nehemiah commits to return to the king and fulfill his position as cupbearer. He says, uh, before I go, could you give me letters to give to the people I meet saying that you, that you are giving permission for me to rebuild? Sure. The king gives him letters. Wow. He is set up for success as he heads back to Jerusalem. He has letters to acquire resources to rebuild the temple under a king that was not a Jew. Nehemiah heads back. Chapter 2, we see him heading back, acquiring the resources. And go to verse 10 in chapter 2. When Sanballat and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. You see, Nehemiah was going back to get in the way of evil, to help the Jews rebuild the temple against the opposition that was there. And of course, whenever there's an attempt to stop evil, what happens? There's opposition. In verse 10, we see here the enemies are opposing. They said, oh no, somebody is coming for the best interest of the Jews. So he faced opposition. But he continues on. He didn't let that stop him. End of chapter 2, he goes and scouts out the land. After he scouts out the land, he draws the Jews together and he says, hey, the king has given me permission. He's given me resources to rebuild the temple. You want to come? The Jews got excited. The king of Persia has given them permission to rebuild their own town. So, the building commences. It starts. 
And Nehemiah, through the rebuilding process, was such a leader. They faced opposition after opposition. First, they were mocked, but they kept on going. They were threatened with a fight. Somebody was going to come and attack them, but they kept on working. Half of the people guarded, half of the people worked. Tobiah and Sanballat tried to lure Nehemiah out for a meeting. Nehemiah did not go to the meeting. He saw through it. And the result was, 52 days later, the wall was built. Jerusalem was protected. Nehemiah doesn't stop there. He goes again to call Ezra. Uh, I'm skimming through here quickly in chapter 7 and 8. He calls Ezra to read the laws to the people. They observe the feast like they were supposed to. He was committed to getting in the way of evil and getting Jerusalem and his group of Jews back to the path that God wanted them to walk. My question I ask as we look at the life of Nehemiah, what was his motivating force? Why did he leave his position, his good job, to go back to Jerusalem? Couldn't he have been a witness to the king Artaxerxes? Could haven't he been faithful Back where he was called? What drove him to that? To get in the way of evil? The question I pose for myself this morning is, what is my motivating force in life? What is, what is yours? How do you make decisions on what you should do with your life, with my life? Imagine playing a game with nobody winning. Softball game. Sunday afternoon, a couple family members get together. A couple people are batting, a couple people pitching. When does it stop? Whenever you're tired of it? There's really no point. Okay, yes, you could argue, yeah, we're having a good time. Yes, that's great. But there's really no point to that little pickup softball game. How about Duck Duck Goose? You run around in circles, who wins? Oh, we're having a good time playing together. What is the end goal? Brothers and sisters, if we don't have an end goal, we're not going to get there. What is your motivating force or end result that governs the decisions and the things you become involved in in life. Proverbs 29.18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. What happens when there's no vision? We perish. So what is our ultimate goal here on life? As Christians, why are we here? What did Jesus leave with his disciples? The Great Commission. Go and teach. Go preach. Go be a witness. Are we? Are you a witness? Am I a witness? And Jesus doesn't tell the disciples that it's going to be easy. In Matthew 10, he's, he's uh, talking to his 12 disciples. He gathers them together. He says, all right, I want you to go out. I want you to perform miracles like you've seen me do. Oh, but by the way... Um, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. Sounds like a death sentence. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Getting in the way of evil, fulfilling the great commission, living with an eternal perspective is not easy. As we think about getting in the way of evil this morning, don't seek comfort. Seek the God of comfort. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. Faithfulness is storming the gates of hell. 
As we think about getting in the, in the way of evil, evil is, getting in the way of evil is proactive. It is getting out there. We're going to talk a little bit about what it looks like. Before we jump into a couple points about Nehemiah, turn with me to Hebrews 11. When I say Hebrews 11, what comes to your mind? The Bible Hall of Fame, maybe. Faithful men who stood up for God. And you can read down through Hebrews 11, and it talks about various people who by faith got in the way of evil, living with an eternal perspective. I would like to jump in at verse 13. This foundational truth is important for our Christian life. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, talking about the people before in this chapter, and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Key foundational truth of our life. We have to view ourselves as pilgrims and strangers here on this earth. If we can view ourselves as pilgrim and strangers, we can then be committed to getting in the way of evil for our Lord and Savior. Three quick things as we look at the life of Nehemiah. Back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah's position of pro had a position of prominence. He was at the top of the ladder, per se, in the servant category. What did he do? He served faithfully. Don't you think God could have called him there to a lifetime of service? But what did he do when he, he, hear, when he heard about the state of Jerusalem? It touched his heart. And I see here a glimpse into Nehemiah's life that he was looking for ways to get in the way of evil. Point number one, we need to be looking we need to be looking. And the idea of vision brings the idea of eyesight or dreams, imagination, foresight. Focus on the future. That is vision. And if we can have that vision, we can then be looking for the ways around us to get in the way of evil. I would like to define vision as God-given discernment. God's discernment, God-given discernment for the future, okay? And when we have that focus on the future, we can then have a drive right now. Back to the softball game, okay? We form two teams. We actually do a real softball game, inning by inning. You with me? Nine innings, nine inning game. Comes down to the ninth inning, bottom of the ninth. You're down, you're, the score is tied. You have a runner on third base. What you going to do? All you need to do is bring that runner home, right? So should I be trying to hit a home run so I can get on the stat sheet? No. The key is doing that bunt so all that runner can get home. You see, there was an end goal. The end result was to win, to get that runner home. 
When we have that vision, we can then be looking for things right now where we can get in the way of evil. We need to be looking for opportunities. What was God's vision for the church? Again, the Great Commission. Last words to his disciples. Go and teach. Take me into the world. So the question is, what happens if we're not looking? Life is good. Life is great. I'm involved in the church. I have a family. You name it. Is that good enough? What happens if we don't have vision? Two churches in Revelation that Jesus referred to that did not have a vision was Sardis. They were indifferent. They were careless. Oh, life is good. It's okay. We can move on how we are. God hates indifference. Look it up in Revelation. The next church was Laodicea, lukewarm, content with where they were. God spews out those who aren't useful. If we do not have vision, we cannot be looking. We need to know what we're looking for. First key to getting in the way of evil is look. Let's be on the lookout of ways we can be involved in the kingdom. And to look, we need to have that vision of what God wants for us. And only God will do that. You see, Nehemiah could have ignored the news that day. Oh, God has called me to serve King Artaxerxes. I think my other brother can go instead. No. Instead, he let that hit him personally. As we're looking, do we let the needs affect us and hit our hearts, seeing it the way God sees it, with love? Let's look. But now you're asking the question, um, and I ask this question too, yeah, there's needs around. We see that. But I can't do everything. I can't. I can't be involved here and there. So what's the answer? Secondly, we need to be seeking. Once we look, once we have that vision, we then seek. Why? Okay, state of our world. We hardly need to look around, right? There's so much around. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We tend to go astray. We tend to pursue the things of ourself. So the question, or the things I would like to pose this morning, in our seeking, we're sometimes distracted. There's distractions that overcome us that cause us to look the other way when we see something to be involved in. We might come up with excuses. Oh, I'm already involved in this. Maybe the affections of the world, pursuing the American dream, things that we don't want to give up, are our excuses to not be involved in the things that we see. Maybe it's wrong motives. Maybe it's pride in serving. Oh, we only become involved in the things that are going to make us look good. Maybe it's comparing ourselves, looking at others. Well, I'm doing this and this compared to him. Why should I now pursue something else? That's not what seeking is, brothers and sisters. Turn back to Nehemiah, chapter 2. And I already referred to the verse uh, in verse 10, where Sanballat and Tobiah heard that Nehemiah was coming to help the Jews in Jerusalem. 
And I'm not going to take the time to read through the rest of the chapters. But every time Nehemiah was faced with opposition, actually going back to the time when he was still a cupbearer to the king, what did he do when he heard about the need? He sought God in prayer. We need to be seeking God's will. And here I would like to portray a couple differences between our ambitions and God's vision. There's a difference between vision and ambition. So we talked about looking to see the needs. And it's not that hard to see the needs. But then we're asking the question, well, how do we know what I should be involved in? And here is where I get mixed up. And I start pursuing my own ambitions and justifying the reasons I'm involved in the things that I am. The difference between vision and ambition. Vision is God's will. Ambition is my will. Ambition is a strong desire and determination. Now you might say, ambition, that's a good thing. That pushes you to do things. Yes. But ambition is often what I want to do what makes me look good, or what's easy for me. Vision is God's will, or God-given discernment. We're going to talk here about the difference between our ambitions and God's vision. Ambition begins with man, my ideas. Vision begins with God's ideas. Ambition is a work of sight. We can see everything fleshed out. We can see the results. We can see the rewards. That makes us want to pursue it because we can see a, a blessing behind it. Vision is a work of faith. We don't often see the end results. But they are there. God's blessings are there. That is vision. Ambition. If it works, it must be right. Oh, life is great, things are going good, my family's great, my church is good, I'm not mad at anybody. Must be great. That's ambition. Vision, if it's right, God will bless. Are we seeking God's blessing above all? Are we seeking God's blessing in our vision? That is vision. Um, ambition seeks approval of men. We want to be noticed of others. We want other people to see the things that we're doing. Vision is obedient to God, not worried about the approval of men. Ambition serves himself. Hmm. That's where it got me. Vision serves God. Again, we're asking, we're talking about asking the questions of what we should be involved in, in the seeking process. Are we ambitious or do we have godly vision? And lastly, life of complexity defines ambition. And this spoke to me. My life tends to be complex. Oh, I have this going, I have this going, I have this going. And we, I don't have the time then to, to be involved in the things that I see. Vision is a life of simplicity and godly sincerity. The difference between vision and ambition. So, as we seek, are we ambitious or do we have vision? That's my question I want to ask you, ask myself. And what do we do with seeking? What did Nehemiah do? He prayed. He prayed. Every time opposition or something came up, he sought God to lead him. 
So we're looking. After we look, we seek God's will for vision. Thirdly, we fight. We will be fighting. A few quick tips for the fight before I get practical. When we get out there and fight, sometimes when we're ambitious, when we see something and, all right, let's go do it, we sometimes get discouraged. At least I find myself getting discouraged. And then I have to ask myself, is it my own ambitions that I want to pursue? When it's our own ambitions, we will get discouraged. A relationship with God is total surrender. It's not pushing our ambitions, the things that we want to happen in our life, on God. It is letting God lead us first. Relationship with God is number one. Pursue passion. What you are feeding on today will become your passion tomorrow. Remember that. So we're, we're talking about the fight. Getting out there and getting in the way of evil. And it's not easy. But if we pursue, what we pursue today will get us excited tomorrow. So if we're pursuing eternal things today, we'll be excited for the fight tomorrow. Pursue passion. And also, we need our brothers and sisters around us. They see our lives from a different perspective. Brotherhood accountability is vital to the fight. They come along beside us and make sure we're fighting. We're looking, we're seeking, we're fighting. Turn with me to the last chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13. So Nehemiah stays there in Jerusalem for a while, uh, gets the, the book of the law read, things are on the right track. He heads back to the king, Artaxerxes, for a time to be permanently released from his position so he can come back to Jerusalem. On his return, he sees that things have went south and they were no longer following God. But he doesn't give up. And he keeps on fighting. In the first part, in, in verse 4, uh, chapter 13, verse 4, and before this, Eliashib, the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. Now remember, Tobiah was the enemy. And what they were doing, the priest was giving a Tobiah a house in the temple, a room in the temple, furniture of the temple that was supposed to go to the priest. And Nehemiah comes in in verse 8. It grieved me sore, therefore I cast forth out all the household stuff out of Tobiah. This was a radical change. He came in, he saw something wasn't right. He went into the room, got the furniture, and threw it out. He was getting in the way of evil. Next, he saw they were intermarrying with other people, with the, the people groups around. What does he do in verse 25? Again, he's going to radical means. I contend with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair, pulled out the hair of those who were intermarrying. He did not... He was radical in getting in the way of evil. He did not stop. And in verse 28, we have him chasing away somebody else who was intermarrying. Nehemiah, as we look at his life, we see he was bold. And some of us are saying, ah, I don't know if I'd have the, I don't have, quite have that personality to go start pulling out hair and chasing people away. But what are the small things that we can get in the way of evil? Again, don't seek the God of comfort. Don't seek comfort. Seek the God of comfort. 
Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It is storming the gates of hell. We must get in the face of evil with uncarnal weapons. So my question is, are we looking? Do, do we see the needs around us? Or do we turn a blind eye, saying, oh, I'm already involved in this and this. Once we're looking, we need to seek. God, what will you have me to do? Will you have me forsake the things that I'm pursuing now? Are we seeking and are we fighting? And sometimes I give a little pushback to Nehemiah's response and saying, hey, we're supposed to live a life of peace, right? We're not supposed to get too radical. Getting in the way of evil sometimes has to be radical. Not pursuing our own motives. Not pursuing our own agendas. But with uncarnal weapons, getting in the way of evil. So what does it look like for us to get in the way of evil? It doesn't just mean running into the middle of a war game. No, that's not the only way we can get in the way of evil. In 2012, there was the shooting in Colorado in a theater. James Holmes went into the theater and shot several people and injured many more. And in searching into his past records, they found that for years, months, he was purchasing ammunition and guns from various stores. So if we would put more laws in place for guns, that would have been eliminated, would be one response. But James Holmes was also a person who kept to himself. And in America, how many Christians do you think he passed that could have reached out to him? and saw that something wasn't right, and said, hey, James, can we go out for a cup of coffee? That would be getting in the way of evil. Getting in the way of evil does not just mean storming, storming into the arena. It can mean talking to somebody that you see is not right, witnessing to somebody that you see needs help. In the state of our society, I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around and get a little discouraged. I'm a little afraid of what my children might have to face one day. And sometimes my solution is, huh, a new president, new laws. But is that the solution? Is it? I don't think it is. It starts with us. It starts with the people around you. The needs that you see arising, getting in the way of evil, standing up for truth, showing love, taking the time. And maybe it means living a simple life so that we can have the time to invest in the things that we see. Maybe it's a neighbor, an elderly gentleman who sticks to himself. Maybe it's a neighbor on his deathbed with cancer. Maybe it's a neighbor who has inappropriate pictures up on his garage wall. Those are three things that God showed me this week. And I want to work at this summer. So you can come and check in with me in a couple weeks to see if I reached out to those individuals. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But if we have vision, happy are we. Does my lifestyle need to be more simple to allow time for investing in the needs around me? As you look at your life, or should I say as I look at my life, are you investing in relationships that have eternal value, that are getting in the way of evil? Look, seek, and fight.
Are you getting in the way of evil? Let's go do it this week, brothers and sisters. Stand strong, be courageous, and show love. Let's all stand for a closing prayer. After the closing prayer, I have a verse of song, and then we will be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Thank you for being our God. We are humbled, we are blessed to be your children. And you have called us to a life of commitment to you. And we would want it no other way. But dear God, sometimes we lose the vision. And we start pursuing our own ambitions. But I pray that we would have your vision to look for ways to get in the way of evil. I pray that we would have vision to seek your will. To seek your, what you want for our lives. So that we can go out there and fight. And invest in the lives of those around us. I pray, dear God, that you would give us courage and strength to get in the way of evil. Please take us as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.